You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, well, this recording isn't being done at its usual time. This is a sort of special edition. Now, if you're really looking forward to the Saturday show with Ross Clifford talking about the legal case for resurrection, still coming. Nothing has changed here. We're just doing a special one-hour interview today. And we're talking about, well, what a shock. Evidence. Something that we love to talk about on the show here. And there's a, a book that's come out now. The new evidence that demands... Well, okay, it's not new. But evidence that demands a verdict there. And it's a new edition, I should say. And this one is, of course, by Josh McDowell. But also his son, Sean McDowell, PhD. And Dr. McDowell has been on our show before. And he's back here to talk about this new book. Now, who is he? He's a gifted communicator with a passion for equipping the church, in particular young people, to make the case for Christian faith. He connects with audiences in a tangible way through humor and stories, while imparting hard evidence and logical support reviewing all areas of life for a biblical worldview. Sean is an associate professor in the Christian Apologetics program at Biola University, and he is a resident scholar for Summit, California. He still teaches one high school Bible class, which helps give him exceptional insight into prevailing culture so he can impart his observations poignantly to fellow educators, pastors, and parents alike. In 2008, he received the Educator of the Year Award for San Juan Capistrano, California. The Association of Christian Schools International awarded exemplary status for his apologetics training. Sean is listed among the top 100 apologists. He graduated summa cum laude from Talbot Theological Seminary with a double master's degree in theology and philosophy. He earned a Ph.D. in Apologetics and Worldview Studies from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2014. Traveling throughout the United States and abroad, Sean speaks at camps, churches, schools, universities, and conferences. He has spoken for organizations including Focus on the Family, Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Backyard Skeptics, Crew, Youth Specialties, Hume Lake Christian Camps, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and the Association of Christian Schools International. Sean has also appeared as a guest on radio shows such as Family Life Today, Point of View, Stand to Reason, Common Sense Atheism, and The Hugh Hewitt Show. Sean has been quoted in many publications, including the New York Times. He's the author, co-author, or editor of over 18 books, including The Fate of the Apostles, A New Kind of Apologist, The Beauty of Intolerance, Same-Sex Marriage, A Thoughtful Approach to God's Design for Marriage, with John Stone Street, Is God Just a Human Invention, with Jonathan Morrow, and Understanding Intelligent De- Design, along with William A. Dembski. He's also written multiple books with his father, Josh, including The Unshakable Truth, More Than a Carpenter, and we're going to talk about today, an update for evidence that demands a verdict. He's a general editor for the Apologetics Study Bible for Students. He has also written for Youth Worker Journal, Decision Magazine, and the Christian Research Journal. For all the dialogue with Sean, he blogs regularly at seanmcdowell.org. 
In April of 2000, he married his high school sweetheart, Stephanie. They have three children and live in San Juan Capistrano, California. He played college basketball at Iowa University and was a captain his senior year on a team that went 37. I'm guessing that's pretty good in basketball, am I right? <laughs> 30 and 7 is not bad. <laughs> yeah, as you can tell, I don't really know much about sports. <laughs> um, so, uh, Dr. McDowell, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you for having me. And you read the full bio, so listeners now know everything about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good thing I keep a, keep something to drink nearby. I'm definitely going to need it here. <laughs> but maybe they don't know everything about you. I mean, what if they don't know you personally? How did you get to be doing what you're doing today? Uh, that's a great question. I uh, it's For me, it's a long journey. I started by uh, teaching high school. Mm-hmm. After I graduated with double masters in theology and philosophy from Talbot, mm-hmm. and I thought I was going to do high school student ministry my my whole life, and I taught worldview, apologetics, theology, Bible, and mm-hmm. then about maybe six years into, I started thinking, you know what, I love working with students. This is my heartbeat, but I want to go get a PhD and also do graduate studies and potentially college. So I went to Southern Baptist, did a distance PhD program. And a position opened up at Biola at right at just the right time, so I took that in the apologetics program, but still teach high school uh, Bible part time and then mm-hmm. speak a lot as well. So it's mm-hmm. that's been the main part of the journey. Yeah, we talked about this some last time, but I think it's worth repeating again. And that's about how you approached your dad one time several years ago, and you said, "I I'm doubting." Christianity. Now, a lot of parents would panic at that point if their kids came to them and said that. What does your dad do? Well, this was over two decades ago. Mm -hmm. I was probably, I think, 19 years old Mm -hmm. around my freshman, sophomore year in college. And I got online. And really, this is Mm mid-90s when blogs and the internet was really just become popularly accessible to people. And I came across these secular websites, which really began mm-hmm. responding to my father's book, Evidence It Demands a Verdict. That's how the secular web started. Mm-hmm. And I got on there, and they kind of had gone chapter by chapter, historians, philosophers, psychologists, and lawyers. And they just tried to dismantle my father's work chapter by chapter. And at 19-year-old, I just simply didn't have the training or sophistication right. To see where their errors were. Now, I look back at some of their arguments and I think, I mean, some of this mythicism stuff is just frankly silly, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have an answer for it at 19. So it really kind of sent me into a tailspin, so to speak. And I felt like I needed to just tell my dad that where my doubts and questions were. So we were in Breckenridge, Colorado and uh, asked him to go out for coffee and just sat down and said, Dad, I really want to know the truth, but I'm not sure that I think Christianity is true having no clue how he would respond. And, mm-hmm. you know, now I shouldn't be surprised. My father's just the consummate optimist. But he looked me right back in the eyes. He goes, son, I think that's great. And, of course, I said, did you hear anything that I just said? <laughs> Why is that great? And he said, look, I-, I didn't raise you to just believe something because I said I've raised you to seek after truth. He goes, I'm confident that if you seek after truth with all your heart and mind, you'll be led to Jesus because Jesus is the truth. He said, only give up what you've learned if you're persuaded that it's not true. Mm. And then said something like, your mom and I will love you no matter what. And I think that really just freed me up. And I don't think I 
I certainly wasn't an atheist. I don't even think I was an agnostic. I still think I believed. My belief was just really unsettled. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. hitting a point that a lot of people do of asking, do I really believe this? Am I going to bank my life on it? Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. McDowell, this book came out recently, the Kindle version right now. In fact, is 1999. The hardcover was 1949. There are a lot of apologetics books out there and this one has like over 700 pages or so of information. Why do you think a person should get this book instead of something else? Wait, 1949? This book was definitely not written in 1949. No, the, hard, the hardcover is 1949. The of evidence? Yes. Uh, it was first written in 1972. My no, dad was no, born in 1939. The, the price. The price is oh, 1949. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I totally missed you on that one. I'm like, man, there's no way he wrote that in 1949. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that makes a lot more sense. Yes. He, it actually, I mean, it retails at $37. So mm-hmm. for a 800-page hardback yep. that's really a quality book, Mm-hmm. 19 bucks, I actually think is a steal. Now, why should they get this book? I right. guess I'd say a few reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, when my father first wrote it, what made evidence so unique in the early 70s was that nobody had access to this kind of material. It was the first time some people on a popular level saw the evidence for fulfilled prophecy, the resurrection, the deity of Christ. And it really was eye-opening to people. Mm-hmm. Well, now that there's so many more apologists doing things, and people can find some of the information on the internet or their local library, so you might be thinking, what's the value of evidence? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, in a world in which everybody has a voice through a blog, through a mm-hmm. podcast, through however, through social media, there's something to be said for trust. Trust is one of the most important commodities. So mm-hmm. the book Evidence and the McDowell name in my in particular, my father has just built this consistency, this quality over time that I think really speaks to people that it's a voice they can trust. Mm-hmm. And second, it's a huge time saver. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had three dozen graduate students. We had 12 of the top scholars in the world, people you know, like Mike Lacona and Craig Blomberg and Craig Evans, etc. All of them have been on the show before. Of course, yeah, who have all really helped us put this together. So there's mm-hmm. a quality in this book that's unique. Mm-hmm. There's a history in the book that's unique. And I also say there's a scope. If somebody wants one book to really be kind of an introduction with depth on the big issues, such as the resurrection, deity Christ, mm-hmm. the existence of Jesus, reliability of the Bible. This is really the place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think something you could say also is that, I mean, you know, honestly, as you know, I actually haven't got to go for the whole book yet. I've been part of a, a launch team that's been behind the scenes going through. I'm about 535 pages through or so. And I think one thing you could say also is that if all you wanted to know about, for instance, was, say, the resurrection of Jesus. You can skip everything else at that point and just go straight to that chapter and look and see what's said about that. Well, I think that's right. And the resurrection chapter is about 50,000 words. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a substantial chapter. Right. Most books are about 50,000 words. Mm-hmm. So that alone is kind of the price of the whole you know, makes a whole book worth it. And that's true for the mm-hmm. other chapters. If you just want to know, how do I know the New Testament is reliable? Well, we have a substantial chapter that really brings together 
so many different lines of research and evidence that are out there into one chapter that really summarizes, documents, highlights the key evidences. That's where people find the value. So people want to know, how do I know the exodus happened? What's the evidence for that? Well, that one chapter, we bring together some of the recent scholarly research and make it available for people. Yeah, now before I ask you something about the exodus, I'd also like to say, do you think you could at the same time see this book as also a gateway book, as in, since that, uh, if you want to know about the resurrection, again, you go to that chapter, and then you read all these leading Christian scholars talking about the resurrection, and you say, hmm, maybe I should check out their books as well. Well, that's exactly what we're doing. This, Even though it's 800 pages, this is written for a lay level. We're not mm-hmm. writing this book for scholars. Right. So one of the things my father has done well, as people like, say, Lee Strobel has done, or Jay Warner Wallace, or Greg Kokel, is take what top scholars do and make their work understandable and mm-hmm. accessible. Mm-hmm. So, of course, in the resurrection chapter, we are bringing together the research of William Lane Craig and N.T. Wright and Gary Habermas and Michael Kona, but we cite them and suggest to people, hey, you want to take this to an intermediate or an advanced level, here's the best works that you need to read. We do that with a chapter on the deity of Christ. Mm-hmm. We lay out some of the best verses, some of the best sources. We respond to common objections. But then we say, here's a handful of the best resources. And we actually worked with people like Rob Bowman and Ed Komaszewski, who are just experts in this area, to make sure that we have, number one, the best arguments, but number two, that we're recommending people to the best sources. So I think the word you use, gateway, is exactly the right word. Mm-hmm. What all went into the research for writing this book? Nick, I'll tell you this. Next to my dissertation, this is one of the biggest projects I've ever done. In fact, I might have spent as much time on it. I wish I had charted the hours. But essentially what happened is I sat down with a 99 version and started to say, okay, what chapters do we need to keep? What chapters do we need to get rid of? What new content do we need to bring? Came up with my ideas, and then I sent it to dozens of people saying, do you agree? Am I missing something? What should I add? So the first part was just to narrow down and say, what's the scope of this book? And then we had some people go through, people like Jonathan McClatchy, a friend of both of ours, go through a ton of the chapters and just to find all of the objections people had written against evidence in the various chapters, compile them, and then we could include those in responses as we went through the chapters. So then I put this team together. I went uh, primarily to Biola. We also worked with a, a student from Liberty, And I really said, who are some of the best students at Biola, the sharpest ones, who would be willing to either edit, research, write, help us update each of these chapters under kind of my guidance. So they're doing this research, send it back to me. I sent it back to them multiple times. And then finally, when I'm satisfied with it, we would send the chapter to one of the top scholars in the world in that area then they'd send it back, and I'd send it to the student. They'd do edits back to me, back to the student. I mean, this process went on and on and on. And mm. then the editing phase started. And mm. it, I mean, it took, it took a few thousand hours by me if I added up. I would guess probably, I mean, a typical dissertation is two hours. I'd probably guess three or 4,000 hours over three years working on this. And that's really because, Nick, I just felt the weight of getting this right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. going to be translated into a right. lot of languages People trust it as a resource, and we're dealing with evidence for the faith. So it was unbelievably timely and exhausting, but I feel really good about what we came up with. 
when you were doing some research on your own, I'm sure, did you ever come across any objections that weren't covered from a 99 version? Anything? Geez, I'm just really not sure how we're going to answer that one. You know, there were a few that, that were easy, mm-hmm. and then there were a few that just took a little bit more time and mm-hmm. research and thought. Yeah. So that, that was probably true on every chapter. I mean, there was some pushback on the resurrection chapter about different alternate theories, and mm-hmm. I'd go back and forth with the author. I would email some experts and just kind of say, all right, here's how we're answering this. What do you think? Is this right on? So, yeah, there were, there's, you know, there's the, the popular objections are genuinely not that hard to answer, but then there's some tougher scholarly ones where we really had to weigh, how do we respond to this? So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's definitely the case. I said I'd ask a question about the Exodus, and so I, I think now's the time. Something I did, like, admitted when you went through is that, I mean, a few years ago, it was archaeology seemed to be clearing things so up so much, and now there's a lot of questions from archaeology, and especially in the area of the Old Testament, where you know there's not any like, cut and dry, knockdown argument for the Exodus, right? I think that's correct. Now, mm-hmm. anytime we're looking at an ancient event and mm-hmm. the field of archaeology, mm-hmm. we have to ask, what should we expect to find? Right. I mean, that's only fair, mm-hmm. and. So any event from at least 3,000 plus years ago of the kind that the Exodus was, Exodus mm. was, in principle, what we would discover would be limited. And there's reasons for this. I mean, typically, pharaohs, if they were viewed as God, and this really happened the way the Bible described it, there'd be incentive not to record some of the history to paint the pharaoh in the negative light. That's mm. one of them. Mm-hmm. And second is archaeological discoveries fade they're sometimes difficult to interpret. Things are destroyed. So even in Israel, only a small percentage of Israel has been excavated. And those sites that have been excavated, only a small percentage of those sites have been excavated. Very little of those have been reported to the public. So archaeology is a difficult field. So I do think one of the keys that people need to keep in mind is how we even approach something like the Exodus. So Mm -hmm. there's been a debate between what's called minimalists and between maximalists. Minimalists will say, essentially, we won't trust anything a document like the Bible says unless there's external corroboration for it. A maximalist says, okay, wait a minute. We have a historical document that we have reason to believe is trustworthy from a variety of different angles. Why would we throw it out completely apart from independent archaeological support? Mm-hmm. So if you approach it with a minimalist, you're not going to give the Bible any credit, credence. Mm-hmm. But if you approach it from a maximalist perspective, you'll be much more generous towards the evidence. And I think it's just – I think a lot of scholars will accept what are in some documents, but then when it comes to the Bible, have a double standard and not accept it. Mm-hmm. So part of what we're doing in the chapter is calling out some of the inconsistency and really just saying, like you said, Nick, there's not a knockdown argument, but there's enough evidence and findings to show that the biblical story is plausible. Right. And we do have some good reason to believe that it's true. Yeah, I, I think this can be a mistake that we can often make that, you know, everything in the Bible has to be absolutely true or else everything is absolutely false. And that's just a ridiculous standard. I mean, if we were comparing, say, the miracles of Jesus, where I can give you a lot of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you said, 
Okay, well, what's the hard evidence that Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana? There's not going to be as much evidence on that end. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Now, mm -hmm. the Exodus is a pretty important yeah. event yeah. in the Old Testament, not as central as the resurrection. I mean, if Jesus rose from the grave and the Exodus mm -hmm. story didn't happen, mm -hmm. I think Christianity is still true because mm -hmm. the resurrection is what it all stems from. Right. But, of course, the historicity of this event on so many levels would raise a lot of difficult theological questions if it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. But – with that said, I think what we need to just show is that it's plausible, that the story makes sense, and that there's no good reason to deny it. I think from an event 3,000 years ago of the nature of the Exodus, that's actually sufficient. Yeah, and I do agree with you that if it happened, we can expect that Pharaoh and his associates would not write it. I mean, I've told you, it'd be absolutely bizarre to imagine the Pharaoh going to his journal when he even saying, Dear Journal, those Hebrew slaves ran off and they defeated my entire army when their gods sank them in the Red Sea. Boy, I hope tomorrow goes better. Right, yeah, I don't think a pharaoh's going to re report that. Mm -hmm. uh, that. That would be very harming to his case. I don't know how many pharaohs kept journals anyways, but yeah. you know, the, point, the mm -hmm. point is well taken. We just, mm -hmm. in any historical event, have to ask, what can we honestly expect and then what do we actually have in light of those genuine expectations? That's how we have to approach it. Yeah, when I encounter someone who's suddenly sharing this archaeological discovery, whether it seems to go with the biblical record or go against it, I always say, wait, let's have caution and see. Let the professional archaeologists look and discuss this, and maybe three or four years down the road, we'll have some sort of answer, because if it's some that's supposedly pro-Bible, and you go and trumpet it, you mean say, see, see, this shows that the Bible's true, and later on it turns out to be a fraud, well, you've done a lot of damage for Christianity. And if you go and say, see, see, the Bible's a fraud, well, then you have a lot of egg on your face when it turns out to be true. So why not just wait and see? Well, that would go both ways then, wouldn't, as you observed, that yep. there's some finding we can't be too quick to say this proves the Bible. Right, But on the flip side, if there's a challenge, not be too quick to just dismiss it or mm -hmm. on the flip side, adopt it. Mm -hmm. Let the analysis come in and have confidence in the scriptures. One thing we can say is over and over again through history, there's been a lot of doubts about the Bible, the Exodus, the crucifixion, mm -hmm. the historicity of the monarchs. But as we lay out in evidence, time and time again, there's hints and clues that are found that I think increasingly make the biblical story plausible. Mm -hmm. Now, you were saying the last edition of this book had come out in 1999, and the world was pretty different back in 1999. I mean, that was the year I graduated from high school, and the internet was just really starting to become a big thing and such, and now it's a whole lot bigger than it was back then. Has the rise of the internet changed anything for this book I think there's no question about it mm -hmm. that the growth of the internet and now smartphones has changed the conversation about evidence more than anything as a whole. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me give you an example of the approach, the methodology, mm -hmm. and the content itself. So not long ago, I was talking with a youth pastor up in Idaho, and he said to me, he said, my brother 
who's a Gen Zer, he's like 2021, 20, doesn't think he can know anything. He says, after all, he can always find somebody on the internet who has a different perspective. And there's so many competing perspectives and options. How can we have confidence in the truth? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the kind of question I hear increasingly. So in some of the chapters on the truth, we really lay out what is knowledge, what is truth, how can we know it? How do we even know that we know anything at all? So these kinds of questions were emerging with postmodernism in the 80s and 90s, but I think the internet has really crystallized them that now we live in a, quote, post-truth culture. We hear about fake news. We felt it was really important to just clarify what truth is, how we know it, first principles, et cetera. So I think the internet has changed it in that way. Mm-hmm. But second, it's also changed the kinds of questions that people ask. Right. So in the 99 version, I mean, it's kind of amazing. There's not a single reference that I could find to remember about the idea that Christianity was borrowed from these pagan mystery religions like Mithras and Osiris yeah. and Adonis. Not yeah. a single reference to it. It wasn't really on most people's radars in the late 90s. Well, now, even though scholarly, this gets very little credence. This is huge in popular circles. So we Mm -hmm. added a whole chapter, and this is one that I wrote uh, primarily myself called Is Christianity a Copycat Religion? Responding to that claim. We added an appendix responding to some of the claims distinctly of Bart Ehrman. I mean, he was not on the scene in the late 90s. Nobody knew who he was. Mm -hmm. Well, now he's, I would argue, the probably the most influential critic in the world against Christianity. So we add an appendix responding to him. And then another huge issue is really the entirety of the Old Testament has changed. I mean, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, what was called the documentary hypothesis, the JEPD theory, the idea that there were multiple different authors for um, for the Pentateuch was a massive issue. Well, now that's a small issue. So the big issues are starting with the historical Adam the existence of the patriarchs, the exodus, the conquest, we pretty much transform the entire Old Testament section to focus on the big people and events and laying out the historical evidence that they existed and are true. So Mm -hmm. you're right that the internet is probably the biggest factor that's brought this on, but there's also been some changes in scholarship itself, the questions people are asking and where the different debates have gone. Yeah. I'm suspecting also there was probably a lot of expansion on the chapter of if Jesus even existed. Because, I mean, you go to scholarly circles and such, this isn't a live debate. But you go to the college campuses and think, oh, this is the big debate that's going on in in the world of New Testament. I mean, I've had people on Facebook saying, hey, scholars don't even know if Jesus even existed. And I'm saying that thing, um, yeah, they do. They do know he existed. I I mean, honestly, it's it's kind of crazy that we had to expand the chapter on did Jesus exist because it's not debated in scholarship. And the irony is people say, well, evolution is not debated. And I'll say, well, look, descent from Darwin.org, there's a thousand PhD scientists who doubt the mechanism of evolution. So at least there's a significant minority. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the historical Jesus – there's not even a significant minority. I mean, mm-hmm. you could count them on probably one hand, maybe two hands, and those who have real credentials and teach in universities, it's so minor. But it's all over the internet. People are asking about it. So we got the help of Paul Rhodes Eddy on this chapter. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I think it's one of the best chapters 
that's out there. We walk through significant sources, less significant sources, Jewish sources, Roman sources, Christian sources, analyze what value yeah. they give to the likelihood Jesus existed. And I think it's really, I mean, we, we try not to overstate the evidence in this book, but the idea that Jesus didn't exist is really just so outside the mainstream of scholarship. It's such a stretch that it's kind of hard to take seriously. It is. Now, I do know what you said, but there was a lot of chapters on, say, what can we know and things like that and such. And like I said, I haven't got to those chapters yet. I know they're coming and such, so I am kind of flying in the dark a little bit here on this one. But I, I think it's great that you have that, because, I mean, you could have someone where you present all the historical evidence, which I think is what your dad tries to specialize in as much as possible, you know. And then someone say, well, that all works, but maybe we just can't know. And someone could do that, and if they get that kind of objection, they might be kind of stuck. So we start through, and we talk about, we have a chapter on the nature of truth. What is truth, and why is it even important? Mm -hmm. So some time ago, we used this example in the chapter. I was speaking on truth, and a student came up to me and said, why is truth even important? Mm. And I said, well... Do you want the true answer or the false answer? <laughs> and that's a line I heard from Frank Beckwith. I got to give him credit. Yes. Oh, you know, he is such a and master at that. He really is. And this kid paused and just looked at me. He's like, I get your point. Mm-hmm. The point was he'd never thought about it. But when you ask if truth is important, you already want a true answer and thus <laughs> assume that truth is important. So we try to clarify that uh, so many things about truth are common sense. We know them, and it's obvious. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing we do is we say, okay, then how do we actually know certain things? Well, there's a debate in philosophy on what's called Methodism, and it's not church mm-hmm. Methodism, but it's mm-hmm. whether you need a method to know something or what's called particularism. Do you start with particular instances of how we know things? Mm -hmm. And we point out that there's certain things we just intuitively know, and we don't need to justify these things. Mm -hmm. There's certain mathematical truths, like two plus two equals four. If you're aware of what two and Mm -hmm. four is, it's obvious that it follows. Mm -hmm. There's logical truths. If all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, it necessarily follows that Socrates is mortal. I think there's certain moral truths, Mm -hmm. such as being wrong to torture an innocent child for fun. We just know those things. Mm -hmm. So we point people back to certain truths. We intuitively, obviously know we base our lives on them. And then if we can know those, the next question is, where do we go from there? So we have an entire section on just certain things about what are called first principles that are undeniable, like identity, Uh, examples like the law of non-contradiction, you can't deny those in function. I mean, if you Mm -hmm. deny the law of non-contradiction, you're going to use it to deny it. But the reality is, the reason we put these chapters out is a lot of people just haven't thought about this. Mm -hmm. They have knee-jerk reactions in our culture or from wherever. And so we're just laying it out so people go, okay, here's what truth is. Here's how we know things. Now let's get on to the evidence. Yeah, I think that happens definitely also with the historical side. I do a lot of debating on Facebook and such. People want me to come and help them out with debates and things like that. And talking to someone just yesterday and saying, well, you know, the Gospels are anonymous and we can't trust them. And you know how many times the Bible has been changed and 
throwing things at me like the whole ending of Mark and the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in John 8. You know, kind of thinking, oh, I bet you've never seen this. And I'm just, you know, like thinking, really, really, this, this is all you've got. And now, for someone like me or you, we do sit back there and say, really, that, that's your best shot right there. But the average person in pew sadly probably isn't equipped for these kinds of really lay responses that skeptics on the internet give that they haven't really looked into themselves even they just believe blindly and it sends so many Christians just reeling. Well, a couple things to keep in mind. I get those objections too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us apologists to, to keep in mind that many times those objections are people just that's not the real issue that's at play. Right. Mm-hmm. They've heard something and they're just, you know, maybe they've seen a, a show on Discovery or National Geographic. Maybe they've seen a YouTube channel, Wikipedia. Or, or the History yeah. Channel. Yeah, the History Channel. And the real issue could be relational. It could be moral. There's something underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. So taking their questions seriously, as long as they respond graciously, is a yeah. way of clearing that away to get to the heart of the issue. Right. But I think when it comes to Christians, one of the reasons, one of my favorite things to do, I don't know if you've seen me do this, Nick, it's on YouTube, is uh, I put glasses on at conferences and churches and mm-hmm. I role play an atheist. Mm-hmm. And I call it an, my atheist encounter. Mm-hmm. And what inevitably happens is 15, 20 minutes into this, I'm given an atheist spiel, take questions, and I shoot it down with big words and journal articles and fancy sounding quotes, people get really frustrated with me. Mm-hmm. And when I'm done, I ask people, I'll stop and I'll say, okay, how would you describe how you treated the atheist? And I see on people's eyes this sense of, oh my goodness, I was really rude and angry. And then I ask the question, I say, why? And it could be that they love the gospel and just want people to see it. Fine. But I think the other piece is what you said, is mm-hmm. as a whole Christians, we don't know what we believe and why we believe it. Mm-hmm. We've never really wrestled with the question, is there good reason to believe there's a historical atom? What would that mean for the gospel if there weren't? Right. Is there reason to believe the exodus actually happened? What about the resurrection? Did Jesus really claim to be God? Mm-hmm. These are big questions. And if somebody is not trained in this, the kind of stuff we walk through in evidence, and they get pressed on it, it's human nature to get defensive and get angry. Mm-hmm. So if we want people to be able to speak with confidence and kindness, one of the most helpful things we can do is train them in apologetics so there's a confidence they have to just engage others in thoughtful right. dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually went and had my oil change in my car yesterday. There was a church I was doing that for free, and I just sit down with him and start talking and we end up talking about apologetics, and so, you know, one of the great benefits of apologetics is you can walk around with confidence in what you believe. And like I said, when, when some atheist comes with a remark, an objection they think is going to blow you out of the water, if you have confidence, that is a very good thing to have at that point. That's right. Confidence goes a long ways. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we have all the answers. Right. But even working with my students, when I take them through ethics books or apologetics Mm. books, one of the things I consistently say is, look, we're really just scratching the surface. Right. But I want you to know that there is an answer 
if you're willing to find it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean we can solve everything. That's not my point. But that Christianity really makes sense. If I can just implant that idea in the minds of my students, then they can have conversations with people, I think, more graciously. And they're also less likely to freak out when somebody challenges them with a question they haven't heard. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on the whole thing about not having all the answers. I mean, if someone sends me a question specifically about Islam, for instance, I'm more than happy to say, hey, yeah, here, talk to David Wood or Abdu Murray and such. They know a whole lot more about Islam. They send me a question about science. Yeah, let me get you in touch with someone who knows the science far better. I think it's a great mistake we have today where we think we have to have an answer to every single question. No one can really do that. I think that's right. No, we don't have to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and in fact, I think today in, a, in an age where people value authenticity, mm-hmm. saying I don't know can actually go a long ways. I mean, I taught a class on a biblical view of sexuality recently at Biola, mm-hmm. and there were people with very differing views in the class. And I felt like I answered most of the questions well for my research, but there were a handful of time I just stopped. I said, that's a really good question. I'm going to have to think about that some more. I don't know the answer to it. And I think that communicates to people, all right, if he's willing to say he doesn't know, then when he speaks, he probably does know. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. I mean, it's just the honest thing to say. Mm -hmm. And no, even William Lane Craig doesn't know everything. I mean, Mm -hmm. my goodness, no human being does. Right. So I think that's a gracious, important thing, especially for apologists to say today. At this point, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm McPeters, your host. We've got a Dr. Sean McDowell on the show today. And, you know, everything that we do here, we do for the support of listeners like you. And we really could use that support. If you want to help us out, please go to deeperwatersapologetics.com and... Uh, there's a link on the side, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that, and it takes you to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. That's my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation. You get in touch with Mike, or Debbie, or me, or my wife, Allie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And make sure we get that donation, and it will be tax-deductible. You can also go and buy ebooks that I have written or co-written, written a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian, co-written Defining Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers for This Generation's Questions, Groundlets, maybe a few others. And then, now, we've got here Dr. Sean McDowell and myself. We're both married men. We know something very well. Women like jewelry. 
They just do. I mean, Stephanie likes jewelry, doesn't she, Sean? <laughs> of course she does. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to get some jewelry of that lady in your life, or if you're just that lady and you want to get some jewelry for yourself or for a friend, go to the jewelry store we have. My friend Lena Klester handles that. And make a purchase in reference Deeper Waters there. Wherever you purchase, 25% of it goes to Deeper Waters. So, guys, you know my words of wisdom at this point. You can go and you can buy some jewelry for that lady in your life to make up for that big recent screw-up that you just did. Or you can buy some jewelry for that lady in your life for insurance for that screw-up that you know you're going to do in the future. <clears throat> so, uh, Doc McDowell, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. You know what? Mm -hmm. You minister to me in a lot of ways, Nick, so I would send him to your ministry. Mm -hmm. You you had me on your podcast, and you helped me in other ways. I think you're doing good work, so I want to back up what you're doing. I, I appreciate that, and it's been my pleasure to get to help you out in so many ways. Well, thank, thanks for having me. It's a, we're, we're a good team. Yeah. Now, let's get back to the book here. Uh, another chapter I'm looking forward to getting to is one about the whole thing of are miracles possible? Because in many cases, I think debates on historicity and such when it comes to the Bible really boil down to this question, are miracles possible? I think you're right about that, and it's important that people understand the way that the chapter is actually phrased. Mm -hmm. So the title is, Are Miracles Possible? Mm -hmm. We're not arguing in that chapter that they happened. We think they do, and we lay out the evidence in some of the other chapters. Mm -hmm. But in this chapter, we're simply saying, are miracles possible? Mm -hmm. So could they happen? And the reason we frame it that way is because people like Hume and other naturalists have said – Everything has a scientific naturalist explanation. Mm. Well, if that's true, then by definition, the resurrection couldn't happen. And by definition, Christianity is false. Mm -hmm. So we're laying out and just simply responding to the arguments by Hume and Spinoza and others and really saying the central question about the possibility of miracles is whether or not God exists. If God doesn't exist, miracles are impossible. If God mm. does exist, miracles are possible. But here's a deal a lot of people miss. To show that miracles are at least possible, we don't have to prove that God exists. Mm -hmm. All we have to show is that it's possible that God exists. Mm -hmm. If it's possible that he exists, then miracles could happen. The naturalist actually has to show God doesn't exist mm -hmm. to prove that miracles are impossible. Mm -hmm. So I think if we keep that in mind, it actually helps us say, okay, miracles could happen. Now let's get on and start examining the evidence that we actually have for miracles themselves. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of atheists, when I argue with them on this kind of point, they do what I call presuppositional atheism, where it's the start with, where miracles can happen, miracles are nonsense, and anyone who believes in miracles or anything like that must be irrational, stupid, what have you. And look, now we know the Bible is false because it contains miracles and no rational person would believe in miracles. And I say, look, you're starting from your position, which to me, you haven't backed. And yet somehow you're expecting me to take it as authoritative. And, you know, the, the, in his book, 
written about 100 years ago, the Syrian Christ, Abraham Rabani, I think that was his name who wrote it, said when he put, meets someone who doesn't believe in miracles, he does put the burden on them. Okay, go ahead. Make your case. Prove to me that they cannot happen, they have not happened, they will not happen. Well, I think that's an interesting strategy because we don't have to show that all miracles yeah. happen. <laughs> really, all we have to show is that one miracle happened. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. If one miracle happened throughout yeah. the history of the world, yep. then miracles are possible. Whereas the naturalist has to either show that miracles are illogical and in principle couldn't happen, mm-hmm. or they have to disprove every single miracle claim. Now, that's not even possible. And I think Craig Keener does a great job in his volume, yeah. his two-volume set on miracles where he lays out and he says, Hundreds of millions of living Christians believe they've seen or experienced a miracle. And he does say, he goes, some of these are better attested than others. That's for sure. Yeah. He goes, but some are very, very well attested. And it's only because of somebody's assumption that they would outright dismiss them, at least before considering the evidence. Yeah. And if anyone's interested, Craig Keener was on our show. I'm sure it's not a big shock to you, Dr. McDowell. He was on our show back in 2013 talking about that very book, Miracles. So if you want to hear that, go back and listen. And you know, the thing about that book is that you could hypothetically prove every miracle in the book wrong, and it doesn't prove miracles can't happen. But if just one miracle in the whole book two volumes is proven to be true, then that puts the skeptic in a very dangerous position. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. I think the similar thing is true with intelligent design. Mm -hmm. When people will argue that there's no design and design proponents will say, well, we don't have to show everything is designed. We think most things are not. But if there's one instance of positive design, then intelligent design has occurred. Mm-hmm. Now, those are different fields we're talking about, but it's the same kind of argument mm-hmm. that just says we only need one. That's it. So mm-hmm. I think it puts a pretty heavy burden of proof on the skeptic who wants to just dismiss the possibility of miracles even before considering the evidence that miracles have happened today and in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I often think of G.K. Chesterton's great quote on this where he says, First, theist believes in a miracle, rightly or wrongly, because of the evidence. The skeptic disbelieves in a miracle, rightly or wrongly, because he has a dogma against them. Well, that's that's a powerful quote that G.K. Chesterton would have written at the early part of the 1900s before a lot of modern criticism. So I think he was on to something. Mm-hmm. Where do you, what, what do you hope comes about after... Having written this book, I mean, what, what's your your goal that you would like to see a few years from now, say? You know, this book has had such an impact, Nick. I mean, mm-hmm. everywhere I go around the world, people will tell me one of two things. Either evidence of demands verdict helped them at a period in high school or college <laughs> or other stage in their life when they had questions. It helped them ground their faith and stay as a believer. Or second, they were a skeptic. They were not a believer. And God used evidence as a part of their journey to draw them to Christ. So those Mm. two kinds of testimonies you hear all over the place. My hope with this goal, my goal with this release of the update is just really to relaunch evidence for a new generation 
and pick up the momentum and hopefully continue what God has done in the past through this book uh, into the future. So I don't have any different goals than the previous books, but I mean, a book that sold, you know, well over a million copies, 40 languages, Mm-hmm. influence people like I heard William Lane Craig say it was one of the top books that influenced him. I mean, my goodness, mm-hmm. if we can relaunch this for a new generation and continue to just be one resource in the church that helps ground people in their faith and helps clear away objections for non-believers, I will be pleased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know I saw on his Facebook page that Michael Kona had said that this was one of the first apologetics books he got. Got it for his 20th or 21st birthday. Obviously not this edition, but one of the <laughs> books in the past. And Eric Metaxas, in his uh, endorsement, said that the book was one that had saved his faith in the past as well. It's amazing. The testimonies that I hear, I mean, even some of the reviews already up on Amazon, Mm-hmm. There's a number of pastors that just say things like, next to the Bible, this is the most important book in my life. I mean, mm-hmm. that to hear so many people say that is really humbling. And one of the big reasons why when I was really managing this project, I felt like, gosh, we got to get this right. There's a whole lot of people that are going to bank on this for their life and evangelism and ministry. Mm-hmm. But those kind of testimonies are really I mean, even Tom Landry, the great football coach from the Cowboys years ago, used to read it 15 minutes every single night, Mm. and it helped him have answers for his beliefs. So the amount of stories that I hear like that are really just humbling, and my prayer is that God will use it in the future for a new generation. Mm -hmm. You know, I really like what you said about the Amazon reviews just now, because you said pastors are saying this, you know. It would thrill me so much if, of all people, pastors would start reading this kind of material and then passing it on to their churches. Because I I think too many pastors don't realize we are in a war right now. Well, pastors are busy, and they have a lot of stuff on their plates. I mean, I don't envy the stress and difficulty of being a pastor. I mean, no mm. question about it. Some mm. just have to do so many things. They don't have the time yet. One of the things I, I just deeply respect about pastors that are able to is that they just carve out time to study, whether right. it's evidence or other books and mm. really preach culturally relevant, historically, theologically accurate sermons that challenge people. And yeah. There's really a generation of pastors, I hear it all the time, Nick, mm. who will say they preach from chapters and evidence. They'll give a sermon on something and just incorporate the evidence through it to help people realize these aren't just stories. This isn't just feel-good right. principles. This is really true. So it's a resource pastors have been yep. using for years, and uh, my hope and prayer is that they'll keep using it. In fact, maybe even more would. And I'm sure with for work that you do with young people, you'd especially love to see if youth pastors would use this. Well, that would uh, <clears throat> that would probably mm-hmm. excite me more than anything. In fact, yep. I, had a, I got a chance to speak last week to about 120 leading youth pastors at kind of a special event, and most of them got copies of the book. And mm-hmm. at the very beginning, uh, Doug Fields, who people in the world of youth ministry will recognize his name, he got up there and he said, look, this was a huge book in his own faith staying secure and in his ministry over the years. Mm -hmm. And he asked these youth pastors how many of them the book evidence was central. 
and helpful to them. And I mean, I, I wasn't count hands, but it was well over half. So if there's youth leaders out there, I can tell you, cause I work with them. Kids are hungry for evidence. They need apologetics. Mm-hmm. They've got to be trained in this material. Yeah. I've Gregory said that believe it or not, youth pastors, your kids might be greatly benefited if you give them a little bit more than just concerts and pizza parties. Yeah, and there's a lot of youth pastors that do that. There's some that just don't know how and are new and don't have the resources and support from the church. I come to think most youth pastors really want to do a good job to train their students to go deeper, but they're dealing with pressures from parents and Right now, especially, there's club sports and drama and there's busyness. It's harder and harder to get students that it's easy to sacrifice some of the depth just to try to keep kids coming to church. I understand those pressures, Mm -hmm. but when it's all said and done, I would almost say, like, we take kids on these apologetic mission trips, and when we raise the bar and really start training kids, they respond. I mean, they want to be taken seriously. They want to wrestle with the big ideas of life. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think these kids will really enjoy it, in fact, if when they're confronted on the internet or in the classroom and they have an answer and they can get the opposition to back off from them and such, that will just give them more passion for Christianity and more confidence in themselves. Yeah, I think confidence is the key word that kids Mm -hmm. know, okay, gosh, the Bible's not just a spiritual book. It's actually Mm -hmm. historically true. And I have reasons for it. It gives them boldness to live out their faith. I mean, if 48 to plus percent of high school kids who say they're Christians believe Jesus is only one way, right? how are they going to boldly live out their faith? The answer is they're not. Nope. If they realize that we have the words of Jesus and he claimed to be the only way and he did miracles and he fulfilled prophecy, man, this isn't just someone's opinion. This is true. So apologetics gives kids a boldness and a confidence in their faith to really live it out. Mm -hmm. Now, what would you say to someone who's a skeptic and they're getting ready to go through your book and they're not sure how they should approach it? What would you tell them? I would just say, number one, read it just carefully and charitably. I've met skeptics who read it with an open mind. I mean, last night I was with... Gina Pastore, her late husband, Frank Pastore, former professional baseball player and uh, radio show host who died tragically about five years ago. He was reading chapter seven, Lord Liar Lunatic, in a professional baseball locker room and commits his life to Christ. Mm. Well, he was intellectually honest. He was willing to read it. and He was skeptical and he asked tough questions and he pushed back. But he was willing to follow the evidence wherever it led, even if it made him uncomfortable. So if a skeptic is reading it, I just ask him to say, as best you can, really evaluate the evidence where it stands. Mm -hmm. And don't go into it just trying to show that it's false. Go into it saying, I'll follow truth wherever it leads. Mm -hmm. Could this be true? I mean, I met with a group of skeptics a few years ago, Nick, and I remember my pastor was there with me. There's about 15 or 20 skeptics. And they said, and my pastor said, if there is a God and he had spoken and had an opinion on something, would his opinion be more valuable than yours? And they fumbled around for five minutes and finally said no. And I sat there and thought, oh my goodness, if there's a self-existent, eternal, 
all-powerful God who speaks us into creation and knows everything, it seems obvious to me that his opinion is more valuable than ours. Wow. Yet these skeptics in this group, and I'm not saying all skeptics are that way, but these handful were, were so blinded by their belief in individual autonomy, they couldn't even entertain their being a God. And if there was a God, they didn't care what he said. Mm-hmm. So I just ask skeptics to be intellectually honest. And if they're not persuaded by the arguments, then fine. Don't believe. I give you the same advice my father gave to me. Follow truth wherever it leads. But don't let your emotions decide it. Don't let your relationships with friends decide it. Let alone what is really true guide what you believe. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. McDowell Weaver, come to about the end of the hour here, so we need to start wrapping things up. Like everyone know, the book is Evidence That Demands a Verdict, new edition released in 2017 this year. So, I mean, you can see several versions on there. This is the one we're talking about today. It's by Josh and Sean both. And the uh, Kindle version right now is $19.99. The hardcover is $19.49. And you can get it on audio CD also for $59.95. This is all on Amazon, right? by the way. And this is at the time of recording. So if things change later, they change. Um, Dr. McDowell, do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you? I do. My website is just seanmcdowell.org. seanmcdowell.org. It's S-E-A-N, and I have a weekly short apologetics videos that I do through a YouTube channel. I tweet regularly, and I just tweet articles and insights and resources to help people out. I blog three or four times a week, and of course, the books are listed there too. In fact, people can actually go to seanmcdowell.org, and we have a copy of evidence signed cheaper than you can get at Amazon. So if people want to get one that's signed, go to seanmcdowell.org. While those supplies last, they can take advantage of it. How much does that cost? I think it's I think Amazon's nineteen fifty and I think at the site it's nineteen flat. Okay. Now do you have any final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Bardo's audience? You know what I just say thank you for having me on and mm-hmm. for listening. You're doing a good job, Nick. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, anybody who's willing to listen to an hour-long podcast on apologetics understands the importance of this. Right. So my encouragement to you is to get into the game. Mm-hmm. We need people like your listeners here to blog, to write, to get into conversations with skeptics, to teach a class at church, to mentor young people. Whether big or small, just get in the game, make contribution, and together – our efforts will be greater because of it. You know, I'm thinking if you say anyone willing to listen to an hour-long podcast and understands how important it is, where a lot of people listen to show are, list- are used to listening to a two-hour-long podcast, so they have <laughs> double, double of a reason to know how important it is. <laughs> well said. Well, uh, Dr. Now I'd like to thank you for coming on here, and I really hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Nick, thanks for having me. Keep up the good work. Mm-hmm. And I remind everyone that next time we're going to have Ross Clifford on talking about a legal case for the resurrection of Jesus. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.